We are wrapping up our study of the book of Esther tonight and um, have enjoyed this study immensely, not only because uh, it's a study of God's Word, but because of the fact that um, it's just an interesting book. It's just, um, it's got drama, it's got romance, uh, it's got um, pathos and agony, and it's got plotting and all that kind of good stuff. What was that? It's got action, yeah. Car chases in it are amazing. I mean, it really is. It's good stuff, good stuff. But we're going to finish that up tonight. Now, every now and then when I teach a class, sometime during the class I'll make a point uh, about something I want you to think about, but I'll say sometime during the, the, that point that don't worry, this won't be on the final test. Well, guess what? Tonight we're going to have our final test finally. Okay? So in just a moment, we're going to do a little quiz and see how much you remember about the book of Esther. I obviously don't do this with every book we do, but the book of Esther is short enough, and it's biographical enough, and it's got enough facts in it, you should be able to remember about everything that's on the test, um, especially if I did a halfway decent job of teaching. What we're going to do is just give you a few minutes to go over these, and then we'll answer them in class. The way the test is set up, I made it very, very easy. Um, you have a question, what's that? <laughs> you got a question, and you got four possible answers. So the answer is there. You don't even have to think of it. You just got to pick out the one out of the four. So it's pretty easy. Do what? All right, we about, everybody about done, or you need a few seconds more? I think I saw about everybody finish working. All right, if you know the answer to any of these questions, raise your hand, and I will call on someone. But also don't be bashful. Um, because we want everybody to participate. But who was the king of Persia in the book of Esther? <laughs> yes, uh, raise your hand. And what was your answer? Uh, anybody else want to answer since he was so quick to answer? Yes, Karen. Azarurus or Azarias, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He, Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for some time. This, this... What threw you off is the King James Version uses the word Azurus. Other versions use Xerxes, which I, if you don't remember, several times during the class I said I prefer to use the Persian name, which is Xerxes, instead of the Hebrew name because it's easier to say. But Nebuchadnezzar is easy to get because of being, I mean, you might pick him because he's a very well-known name. Who disobeyed the king by not coming when he called? Raise your hand. Yes. Go ahead, Tony. They got Vashti the queen. Uh, they had that big uh, drinking party and wanted her to come in and do something, and she just said, no, nope, not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Um, how did the king decide who his new wife would be? Yes, great. Yep, a beauty contest for the young girls of Persia. What was Esther's nationality? Uh, go ahead, she was Jewish, absolutely. What did Big Than, you remember Big Than? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was, had a brother named Big Nose. I remember him very well. What did Big Than and Teresh try to do? Scott. Tried to assassinate the king. And uh, why was that significant? And that played into the providence of God toward the end of the book. If it had never happened, the other thing would never happen, and probably none of the other things would ever happen. So it sounds like a little insignificant thing when it comes across in the book, but that was very important. 
Number six, why did Haman want to kill the entire Jewish nation? Uh, Karen. That's right. He had such an ego, he just couldn't stand the fact that one man went bow down to him. Yes, Jeff. Well, the only thing the book of Esther brings out, obviously from the whole entire book when you look at it, there was some anti-Jew feelings. But the Bible, the book is very specific that what started this was the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him. That's when he decided that he would do this. Now, I agree with you that there was some, evidently some bad feelings. Um, obviously, when we get to the section we had last week, uh, when there were people who still hated the Jews so much, they were willing to go try to fight the Jews, even though they had behind them the right to defend themselves and had the government behind them, but yet they still tried to beat them. That's some, that's some big hatred. But if you want to stick to the text, the text says it was because he would not bow down to them. But good point to bring up. <clears throat> okay. Now, if you, you might have to use your book for this one. And I, I, I tried to emphasize this when we went through this in class. But what day was set for the extermination of the Jews? Yes, Michael. <laughs> you know why I did that? You know why that's done that way? I want somebody to say dar dar. <laughs> uh, third thing, dar dar dar. Um, no, that's obviously a typo. Um, and uh, you made I made mention of the fact that uh, that was an uh, interesting day because it was decided on. The day, when it was decided on, it wasn't the day, but it was decided on the day that was what? Remember, we talked about that just a little bit. If you remember this, I'd be very surprised. It was decided on the day that they would normally pick out the lamb for the Passover sacrifice, which is, I don't know if it had anything to do with anything or not, but it's just kind of interesting that the day that was set for the extermination of Jews was decided on the day that was prior to Passover. But anyway... What did Mordecai do when he heard about Haman's plan to kill the Jews? Roger. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and that, of course, got Esther all excited and started telling him to put some different clothes on. Which brings us to the next question. How long did Esther fast before, before, before that didn't make any sense, fast for, before going to see the king? Anyone? 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 Three days. This was a three-day fast, okay, which I know bothers you a little bit, Roger, because you really like the 40-day things. I know you do because we've had discussions about that, um, and that's a good discussion. Um, what did the king hold out to Esther to show she could approach him? Uh, Barbara, since you had me called him, his golden scepter. Very good. And you, hopefully you paid attention to know this one. What was the name of Haman's wife? Uh, Tony. Zeresh is correct. What did the king do when he couldn't sleep? Read the history books. They were literally read to him, but that's what was happening. Okay. Um, what, did king, what did the king reward Mordecai for saving him from an assassination attempt? Yeah, but I wish... I wish I had a video on YouTube with that one. That would have been something else to see old Haman led him through the streets. Mm -mm, not then. He will later on. But no, no. no. Haman still had the ring because Haman was still prime minister. It was after Haman was executed that he gave the ring to Mordecai. Okay? Who did Queen 
Esther invite to her banquets? Great. The king and Haman, that's right. Now here's the one, if you got this off the top of your head, I'll be, I'll be thankful. If you looked it up and found it, it'd still be good too. But how many banquets did king, Queen Esther hold? Jeffrey. Two is correct. Very good. I don't know why you keep stuff on top of your head like that, but remember not. <laughs> I'm teasing. All right, how did Haman die? Uh, somebody I hadn't called on much. Who, who haven't hadn't called on yet? All right, here, right here. He was hanged on the gallows prepared for Mordecai. Now, once again, the King James Version has gallows. This was more than likely a hole or a stake, and some of your newer translations will have that because um, he was not hung by the neck until he was dead. He was impaled until he was dead. And the gallows would be a lot nicer way to go because usually if the person knows what he's doing, when a person is executed by hanging, it breaks the neck and kills him instantly. If the person doesn't know what he's doing, then it might last for about five or ten minutes. But if somebody knows what he's doing, it's not a problem. But to be impaled on the gallow, on the pole would be a very painful, excruciating way to die. How did the king stop the extermination of the Jews? Great. Gave the Jews the right to defend themselves. And, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about this, but um, one law had already been passed that the Jews were to be exterminated. And according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, that law could not be changed. So the only thing the king to do was to write another law saying the Jews could defend themselves. So both laws could be carried out. Um, and however it, one overcame the other, that's how it would turn out. All right, here's another one. If you, if you knew this off the top of your head, yeah, I'd be pretty amazed, but we did discuss it for just a little bit. What color was Mordecai's royal apparel? Uh, Tony. Blue and white. I'm, I'm just curious. Everybody get that? Okay. All right. You guessed at it? Okay. Uh, and I know that Bobby knows this one. Hey, come on in. <laughs> Because he's already said something about it. No, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, how many sons did Haman have, Bobby? Ten. Name them. <laughs> no, you'll have to. I wouldn't mind you name them just so I can hear you pronounce them. Because man, some of the because <laughs> some of them, some of them be hard to pronounce. Yeah, that's right. You got to do it in one breath. You're going to do it the Jewish way, which brings up an interesting point. What, what was the comment I made last week about how that in the Hebrew Bible, how are these names listed? Right on top of each other, which leads us to believe that they were impaled one on top of each other. And as Frank said, it's correct. During the Feast of Purim, when they read the book of Esther and they come to the ten sons of um, Haman, they say their names all with one breath, signifying that they all died at once. All right. And which brings us to the last question, which I already gave you the answer. What, hey, what festival was instituted to celebrate the fact that the Jews were saved? Purim. So y'all did very good on that. And so let's open our Bibles to the book of Esther and wrap up this book. Last week when we uh, were studying, we got through... Uh, right around verse 20, if I remember correctly, of chapter 9. If any of you all think something different, let me know, because I'm going by memory there. 
But basically what had happened, of course, as we've already talked about, uh, the king gave them the permission to fight back, and that they did. In fact, um, by the end of the first day, there was uh, 500 that were killed in the capital city, and Esther asked for the permission to the Jews to defend themselves another day, and the king gave her permission, and by the end of the two-day battle, uh, 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed in the effort to defend themselves. And we also made mention of the fact that uh, this was probably the final fulfillment of the killing of all the Amalekites with the killing of Haman's son, who was an Amalekite. And even made mention of the fact that uh, three different times in the text, it, it makes mention of the fact that none of the Jews, even though they destroyed their enemies, took the spoils or took anything away from the people they killed. And thus, finally fulfilling what Saul was supposed to do when he destroyed, was supposed to destroy the Amalekites and not take any of the spoils. And that may have something to do with this or not, but it is kind of uh, almost too coincidental that it's mentioned that way three different times in the text. And then we talked about how that after the battle uh, ended, that there was a day of feasting. Uh, first day of feasting took place in the city because the battles in the cities ended early. And, but yet the fighting continued out in the country for another day. And remember, this was all the different provinces of, of the Persian Empire. And so we're talking about a big area. And so they'd had an additional day of fighting, and then they feasted the next day. Well, I won't take time to read it again, but evidently this brought a little strife because uh, the people who were in the city said, well, we want to celebrate the feast of this particular win on this day, and then... The people out in the country said, well, we want to celebrate this feast this second day because that's when it was, was for us. And uh, how did Mordecai solve the problem? He says, we'll just have two days. If only if all politics would be just like that. <laughs> uh, we'll just go ahead and do two of everything. That way, one for our side, one for the other side, and see if they can figure it out. And so um, Verse 20 says, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews that were in all the provinces of of the king Xerxes, both nigh and far, to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the same yearly. As the days were in, the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another and gifts of the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, uh, because Haman, the son of Hamamatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had destroyed against, uh, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, the lot to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, shall return upon his own head, that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore, they call these days Purim, after the name of Pure. Therefore, for all the words of this letter, and of all that had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, 
and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor from the memorial of them that perish from their seed. And I'm just going to finish reading out the chapter. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of, uh, I won't read all that stuff again, but she confirmed the second letter of Purim, and he sent the letters into all the Jews, and they confirmed the days that, uh, and their times appointed according to Mordecai the Jew, and Esther the queen enjoined them. And for themselves, for their seed, for the matters of the fasting and their cry, and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Now, that's a long section that's read there to basically say that the Jews now have a new feast. <laughs> it's called the Feast of Purim. And I brought this out a little bit last week. Um, but this feast that they are now going to keep, and they're going to keep it without fail, and it's still being kept today by those who call themselves Jews. What is significant about this feast different from all the other feasts that the Jews kept? That's right. It's not religious. And nowhere was it ever commanded by God. And though it carries a religious significance because the book of Esther is read both days of celebration, and they will meet in their synagogues to help celebrate this day, and they'll have prayer associated with it and whatnot. But yet it's more of a patriotic holiday than it is a religious holiday. Uh, it's almost like our 4th of July, if you will. Now, our 4th of July, we'll shoot fireworks, and we will have uh, patriotic speeches. Uh, we'll have um, hot dogs and apple pie, maybe, uh, and, and all kinds of things associated with our nation. But any Christian worth his salt will also say a prayer that day and thank God that uh, this nation exists and thank God that through his providence we have been born to live in this particular nation. When you think about all the different places where we could have, uh, through God's providence, been raised and all the different things that could have came about that. So even though that's a patriotic day as far as our nation is concerned, it's not a day that's commanded by God, but yet... Uh, we should be thankful that uh, we did get our independence from England and this nation turned into one of the greatest nations ever seen in history. And that's kind of like what's going on with the Feast of Purim. Um, it's, it's, it's probably kept better than the other religious holidays that the Jews observe. And um, I think because it gives them such a nationalistic uh, pride. Uh, there will be what you might call non-Orthodox Jews who won't keep uh, Passover or keep some of the others, uh, but um, they'll keep Purim. Now, there's another feast. Just, this is not going to be on the test, obviously, uh, but there's another, another feast that we find that the Jews keep that has no uh, sanction from God that we know of. And what would that feast be? Anybody ever heard of Hanukkah? The Feast of Lights? Uh, that feast represents the time when uh, the Maccabeans uh, were able to uh, beat the Syrians back and recapture the temple. And the whole idea is based on the fact that there was uh, uh, oil in a lamp, and that's why it's called the Feast of Lights, that never went out until the battle was over with. And you can do some more study on that. But once again, that's not one of the feasts that God ordained, but yet they observed that as a religious holiday and as a patriotic holiday. And so it's kind of similar to the Feast of Purim. And as I said, that's just a little side note there. And we already talked about how that, um, you know, there's all kinds of festivities that go on with the Feast of Purim. There's the reading of, uh, on the first day, how that they'll go to the synagogue and they'll read the book of Esther. And every time they come to Haman, they'll do what? 
boo and hiss, and whenever they come to Esther and Mordecai, they'll cheer and carry on. And there's the giving of gifts. There's the giving of money to the poor. Um, there's the one of my favorite things where they give everybody, uh, your neighbors and whatnot, you give them Haman's ear. Remember we talked about that? A little pastry. Huh? Did she find a rest? No, she did not tell me that. Is she really? Yeah. So they're actually, you can go online and find the recipe for Haman's ear. There's bunches of them. Okay. But it's basically a three-corner pie, and you give it to your friends on the Feast of Purim saying, here, have one of Haman's ears, showing the Jews' victories over, over Haman. That's pretty interesting. I wonder if it tastes good or not. I bet it'll taste a little waxy, won't it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. All right. <laughs> All right. Any other comments or questions about the Feast of Purim or anything that you want to say before we move to the last three verses of the book of Esther? Yes, sir. Yeah, as far as the Jewish calendar and, and the, the Judean, uh, not uh, Julius Caesar calendar, I forget what it's called now, um, this represents our month of March, okay? All right, but their calendar doesn't go January like ours is the first month, uh, theirs is a different first month. Um, all right, the last three verses, and like I said last week, I don't know why they couldn't just add these to the end of this chapter, but <laughs> I had the last three verses here, and... Verse 1 of chapter 10 says this, and it's almost um, seems out of place, but let's talk about it just for a little bit. And it says that the king Xerxes laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. Now here we are, been talking about all this other stuff, and we're coming to the close of the book of Esther, which is a book about uh, how the Jews delivered themselves and how that Esther stood up and saved her people and whatnot. And you get to the end of the book, and all suddenly it says, and the king decided he was going to lay a tribute upon everybody is basically what that means. First of all, what's a tribute? A tax. So this verse basically says, and after all this finished, the king says, well, let's tax everybody. <laughs> so what in the world is going on there? <laughs> well, first of all, um, all we can do is guess here, okay? And, of course, you know, when I'm studying, I do research and try to find out as much information as I can on some things. The most interesting thing that I discovered was that there are some commentators who believe that this particular verse marks a change in philosophy on King Xerxes. Now, you remember how the book began, and maybe that's why this verse is put here. The book began with us looking at a king that was impetuous and it was... History tells us that in the first part of the book that he was wanting to do what? He was basically wanting to conquer the world. He wanted to make his wealth by expanding his borders and conquering the world. Well, some commentators think this shows a, a, a change in the way that he looked at life and the way that he looked at government. He realized that it wasn't his business to conquer the world but instead he needed to take care of his own government. And he realized that instead of trying to go and conquer other worlds to get his income, that he had within him a group of citizens that he could tax. Now, the Jews are included in this, but it's also everybody else is included in this. And so that's one way people look at it. Another way that people look at it is this shows that after the conquering of the enemies of the Jews... And the fact that Esther is queen and she's Jew and Mordecai is the prime minister that he is Jew, 
It shows the prosperity of the Jewish people, that their prosperity now was such that they could afford a tax. And therefore, uh, Xerxes realized that this was a way to build up the income because of the group of people that he had within his kingdom now that were very special people uh, that they could be taxed. Uh, you weren't in here when we discussed this, but the time period where he lost the big battle and this fleet was destroyed and he never ever, yeah, that occurred right before he made Esther his queen. Yeah, if our connection with the book of Esther, as far as history is concerned, that he, when he came back from those wars and he was defeated, is that when he made the decision and his, and his chamberlains and his ministers decided he needed something in his life because he was so utterly destroyed by what took place. And so they think that Esther came about after he was defeated uh, in, the, in the Greek-Persian wars. And, and that was the end of Persian history, basically. You know, after Xerxes was defeated, never again did the Persia ever become the uh, empire to conquer the world. And, of course, uh, eventually a guy came along by the name of, what was his name? Alexander the Great. And that kind of put a stop to everything. <laughs> But Xerxes was the last king who would try, or emperor who tried to conquer the world in the Persian Empire. And so maybe verse 10 also shows that he was content to be a homebody and just run his government the best he could using the taxes of the people and being a government like any other government. So, and so we can just conjecture, but it just almost seems out of place that all suddenly, of all the things they could talk about, well, the king, you know, he put a tax on people. <laughs> this seems kind of weird. Any other questions or comments? I thought you were going to raise your hand there. Okay, all right. Well, look at verse 2. And all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? And that's a significant verse. It tells us that far beyond the end of this book, evidently Mordecai just became an outstanding uh, leader in the Persian Empire. Uh, he, won, he was one that rose to great prominence, and he literally became a folk hero uh, to the Jews. And um, Jewish people um, hold um, Mordecai in the same way that we would hold uh, Paul Revere or, or uh, George Washington or someone like that. Well, the question is that we often get asked, in fact, it might have already been asked in this particular uh, class before, well, if all this happened in the Persian Empire, why is there no record of it? Why is there no mention of Mordecai in ancient history? And I was even talking to Karen about this a couple of days ago. Um, but why is there no mention of it? If you remember correctly, what we were talking about was that there are absolutely no records whatsoever of the Persian Empire. There's nothing. It has all been destroyed, all turned into dust. There's nothing. Well, someone will ask, as we would ask a history teacher, then how in the world do we know anything about the Persian Empire? Well, we can read in the Bible, but other than the Bible, how do we know about it? All right. We know about it because of what other people wrote about it, namely the Greeks. The Greeks were the ones who fought with the Persians. The Greeks were the ones who eventually took over the Persian Empire. And so that's how we know about the Persian Empire, other than the Bible. That's how we know about Xerxes. That's how we know about Darius. That's how we know about these other people, because the Greeks were big historians. At the beginning of the class, I mentioned Herodias. 
Herodias, uh, he, might not, he might have been partial on what he wrote, but he was like the main history writer of the world. And almost all we know about this time period in this world was written by Herodias. And so um, just because we have no records of Mordecai or have no records of uh, this happening with Haman or have no records of the uh, Xerxes doing any of these things doesn't mean that it doesn't take place. Now, it is interesting that the things that we do have written about Xerxes that we can confirm are the things that have to do with the Greeks. You remember at the beginning of the class, I said, this is what we know about Xerxes. And I talked about the 300 Spartans, and I talked about uh, the past at Thermopylae. Uh, that we know about, not because we have the records of the Persians, but because we have the records of the Greeks. And that's the only way we know about any of this, because none of the records... Even the stuff they found in archaeological digs have turned up any writings. They found bas reliefs and whatnot of pictures and whatnot, like uh, the king holding out his scepter, but we don't have anything else other than the Greek writings. Yes. Which if, it, which, which if you watch the movie, um, like the, the 300, uh, what do you see Xerxes on when they take him, take him to the past to observe what's going on? He's being carried on his throne. Now, I don't know if he looked like he did in the, in the movie because he looked pretty rough in the movie. He had, like, chains all in his eyes and all over the place and stuff. It was weird looking, but he looked more like a devil than he did the king. But the point in all this is we have no records of what the Persians did, and what we do have of the Persians, we got it from the Greeks. So that's why we don't have any of this information, perhaps, in history. But, you know, usually when somebody tries to say, well, that proves that nobody named Mordecai ever existed, usually if we wait long enough, what happens? Something is found, especially if it's used to try to say the Bible's not real. Uh, for example, the city of Jericho was considered a fake city for years and years and years until the 1920s or 30s. And I was saying, guess what? We found a city named Jericho. And it, it supported what the Bible said about it. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Well, you come to verse 3, which is good because we're coming to the end of our time. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Azarius or Xerxes, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed, is what the King James Version has. Um, the section there it says, seeking the wealth of all his people. Um, I may mention that there was a book that was written several years ago called The Thirteenth Tribe that basically puts forth the idea that almost all the Jews that we know today are basically the Persian Jews that came out of the land of Persia and distributed into Europe and to other parts of the world. And that's where the majority of the Jews come today. And they base it on the fact that during this time period in Persia, the Jews grew like crazy and they got so much wealth and they got so much power. Um, one final point. The King James Version has the very last part of the verse, speaking peace to all his seed. Um, that might be correct. I mean, you want to have peace to all the generations that follow him. But the NIV really has a better translation. What does it have, Karen? Spoke up for the welfare of the Jewish people. Once again, emphasizing the fact that under Mordecai, um, the Jews became a big influence in the land of Persia. It uh, kind of reminds you of how that uh, when Joseph and his brothers settled in Egypt, they were given the land of Goshen, which was at the time they thought, well, that's not going to matter much. But before long, Pharaoh was upset because the Jewish nation had grown so much, he was afraid they were going to take over. And that, of course, leads us to the book of Exodus. Yes, come on in. Come on in. Make yourself at home. Take your shoes off. Stay a while. They ran away when I said that. Y'all come on in. That's fine. <laughs> but thank you for your time and attention, folks. <laughs>